If you've joined us before the beginning of the service this morning or after the beginning of the service, I want to again just welcome you, glad you're here, and looking forward to being in the Word with you this morning from Genesis chapter 45 and Genesis 46. If you've not been with us or maybe you've been with us but you just need a refresher, a bit of a reminder, we're in the midst of this story, this incredible narrative of Joseph. And we have just passed through the reconciliation of Joseph with his brothers. Joseph has just revealed himself that he is the one that's been putting them uh, to the test over the last several chapters. Um, He has just expressed his forgiveness uh, to them, and he has just invited his brothers and his father, uh, Jacob, to join him in Egypt as they continue in the midst of this severe famine. Now, as we look this morning at Genesis 45, beginning in verse 16 of the text of Scripture, I want you um, to keep in mind um, really what we sang just a little bit ago in our second hymn of uh, this morning, Though Troubles Assail Us. Uh, There have been many troubles that these brothers and that Jacob and Joseph have faced in the pages of this story so far. And yet we learn as that hymn teaches us that God will provide. Though troubles assail us, we can trust our God. He will provide. And as we look at this text together, part of what I want to have your mind and your heart focused on as we read it and then explore it together is what, where do we see the troubles, what we might call the scrapes with death that have been a part of the whole of the story of Joseph up to now, and how has the Lord been using those troubles and those scrapes with death as a means by which to bring life and change and transformation into everyone's life? Because that theme, from death unto life, is a theme we see from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end. And I would, I'd like to argue this morning, it's a theme that's very near and dear and real in the heart of every single one of us in one way, shape, or form in this room this morning. Keep those things in mind as we look together to God's Word today. From Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house... Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. You shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a charge, a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. 
Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, Joseph is still alive. He is the ruler of all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jochen, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merai, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Aaron Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jalo. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aran, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. And the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berai, Heber, and Machalel. These are the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt, in land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, who Asenath, a daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, and Shilom. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob 
who came into Egypt were 70. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice over this, your word, and we're grateful for the fact that you are a speaking God to us, that you do not sit in silence in the heavenly places and ask us to discern through our own wisdom, through our own insights or attempts at reason regarding who you are and what it is that you're about. You have spoken to us and you have spoken to us clearly. And we would ask through the clarity of your word right now that you would illumine this word through the light of the Holy Spirit and speak to us the living word of truth. Come and meet us in this word, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I look back on my life in many ways, and I'm just so thankful for many of the people who the Lord has brought into my life. Many of you here in this room, I had the privilege this week of running into someone who I hadn't seen in a long time, and we reminisced some about memories, and it's always an encouraging thing when you meet someone whom the Lord has used in your life in the past, you had not seen them in a while, you catch up. And you hear about what the Lord has been doing in their lives and some really exciting and a good report was given. And I started thinking, even as I was reflecting on this passage this week, of several key people in the church that I grew up in who you might say when I was a a young whippersnapper, so to speak, was taking me under their wing and was speaking truth into my life and in the kindness of God, the Lord actually used some of their words. Believe it or not, I can remember a few of those words and remember a few of those instructions. And uh, one of the opportunities that I had was to sit and study with a group of, of men uh, for a period of time, just reading books together. And uh, one of the books that we read, which I just pull, I haven't pulled off the shelf, I must admit to you, in, in years. And it was a pretty, in fact, it was both encouraging and, and often, as is the case, a little humorous to look back at books you read many years ago and look at your notes in those books and, and learn some things about where your heart was back then and the things that you were going through. And sometimes I look at them and I think, Thank you, Lord, for bringing me through these thoughts uh, on to greater ones. And then other times I think, man, I still struggle with that. I, I still need as much help on that issue as I, as I did back then as I do today. And we see that the battle continues in our own growth and grace. But one of those books was this one. It's called Thoughts on Religious Experience by one of the great Puritan theologians, or I should say Princeton theologians, in the 1800s. His name is Archibald Alexander. Now, that is a name that should not have gone out of circulation. Archibald is a great name. Young families in here, is your next son that comes around, I expect to baptize an Archibald coming up in the days ahead. Archibald Alexander, great Princeton theologian, one of the great presidents of Princeton. In fact, back in the day, Princeton was dominated by golden Presbyterian minds. And Archibald Alexander was one of those. And I remember reading this book and being touched by a number of things about what does it mean to commune with the Lord? Because that really is what he's speaking about in the book. But one of the things that so discouraged me, and I just could not comprehend, especially as a young man uh, reading through uh, this book, is that there are about seven chapters on death. And six of those seven chapters on death are about deathbed experiences. <laughs> Recounting people who have passed from this world into the next. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, a chapter on death? Maybe two. 
Um, but we're getting morbid. You know, we're getting at, at, you know, at the third chapter on death, you're thinking to yourself, I need some life here. I need some life in the midst of this, th- this book. And, and yet what Alexander, Archibald Alexander was operating from, different from our own day and time, that very often tends to avoid any thoughts of death, very often tends to isolate death, to, to, to sort of conceal it into the hospital room and for it not to invade normal life and, and for us in some ways try to put off any thoughts with regards to death. Uh, Archibald Alexander lived in a time where people pretty much died in their homes and you being around corpses was something that happened on not an irregular basis because it was a part of normal existence. Many of us don't see someone dead until way late in our life, if ever. And the recognition here is he's saying we need, part of the spiritual life is recognizing to come to terms with the end of life. Coming to terms with the fact that you will die. There's an old Latin phrase that was used regularly in the medieval church called memento more. You can probably hear in that phrase, memory and and mortify. (laughs) Remember, as it were, your death is the phrase. Remember your death. It's a phrase that it captured in many ways the wisdom of Psalm 90:12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When the psalmist says those words in Psalm 90, verse 12, he's just remembering what were some of the very first words out of the mouth of God after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. As God looked at Adam and Eve and said, You are dust. And to dust you shall return. Uh, One of the great um, um, recognitions in church history and in the study of how believers over the centuries have grown close to the Lord and recognized maturity in their spiritual life have been not that they've avoided death or ignored death or tried to conceal it away from their consciousness, but in fact they have taken it as a regular discipline to remember death. Not in a morbid introspection, but as a means by which to create a vision for eternity. That the best way to live is with an awareness that you will die. Matthew McCullough just, I think this last year or maybe the year before, wrote a book entitled Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope. Listen to the words that he wrote. He says, before you long for a life that is imperishable, you must accept that you are perishing along with everyone you care about. You must recognize that anything you might accomplish or acquire in this world is already fading away. Only then will you crave the unfading glory of what Jesus has accomplished and acquired for you. And you need to recognize that you're not going to lose everything, that you're going to lose everything you love in this world before you will hope in an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Looking a few years back at giving a lecture on one of my favorite um, Southern writers, short story novelist writers, Flannery O'Connor. I'd given a lecture on some of her writings and I, I, I gleaned this, this little line from her writings where I had said, just reflecting on a few of her short stories, I think that O'Connor is trying to teach us in what is some of the violent short stories in the Southern fiction genre. It's trying to teach us this one thing, 
the best thing that ever happens to us is when we learn to stare death in the face. The best things really happen to us when we learn to stare death in the face. Now, some of you are hoping I'm going to get off this train in a second. And I will. But I want you to see in part of the story of Joseph that the way in which God has accomplished almost everything he's accomplished is by leading these people to face their death. I want you to see that, first of all, from this point one, from famine to fullness. Now, it's one of those things in reading the Bible. Very often we read it and we treat it a little bit like it's at a distance from us. You know, these characters are a little bit like cartoon characters to us. They're a little larger than life. And oftentimes, we have a tendency in our reading, though we would never profess this, especially as conservative evangelical Presbyterian types, we would never confess that we don't believe that it's history because we know that it is. But in reading it, we have a tendency to sort of treat it like it's not so much of a real event. And we do ourselves an injustice when we do that. Like, for instance, we've been reading through the last several chapters um, something that we haven't spent a lot of time reflecting on, but is critical to the whole unfolding of the text. And it's this scary death threat that looms over Jacob and his sons. It's this global famine Now, this global famine that started chapters ago is what actually is the catalyst to lead us to the redeeming chapters that we're presently in. These men were so hungry, they were so on the verge of death, according to Genesis 42, more than once that they were provoked to leave all of the things that they love and the land that God had called them to, to go to the God-forsaken Egypt, to the place where God would actually provide bread for them. Now, many of us in this room, because we've never been in a place of starvation, we've never been in a place of famine, we have a hard time immediately relating to that. You're probably like me. I mean, I thought I was starving several times in my life, usually when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, when I would come in from the yard playing sports or cutting grass, and I would say to my mom, I'm starving. And of course, she'd say, you ate breakfast like two hours ago. Like, you're, you're not starving at all. And, and, but I was expressing the reality of hunger, and I wanted it satisfied as quickly as possible. But I've never been at a place where I could say, my loss of food was in a medical event where I was teetering on survival. In the context of this passage, we're told multiple times that they're facing death. They're under a death threat. In fact, when they come back from their first trip to Egypt with all of their grain bags popping full of food, they say, listen, Simeon has been held custody by the Lord of the land and we got to go back because he thinks we're spies. And when we go back, we've got to take Benjamin because we told him we had a younger brother. And he says, if we take our younger brother back, then we'll vouch that we're telling the truth and he'll let Simeon go. And so we got to go back to Egypt. And you know what Joseph or Jacob said in that moment? No way, Jose. You are not taking Benjamin back. He's my favorite son. The rest of you can just keep going to get us food. And they said, no, it's not going to happen. We've got to take Benjamin back. And you know what's interesting? In the next chapter, what happened? They took Benjamin back. Why? Jacob got hungry. He got really hungry. 
And he knew if they didn't go back, they were going to die. And he was going to lose Benjamin one way or another. He was teaching them to face death. And in many ways, to get them to the place of this passage, which is what? <laughs> to give them the fullness that there is of life. You realize you would never have looked at a seven-year famine as a means of grace, would you? That doesn't immediately pop into your mind. Starvation was the way God saves us, you know? But if you're looking at the narrative of this passage and you see open, the opening verses here of Genesis 45, 16 is that Pharaoh is now opening up his arms to the extended family of Joseph. And he is giving to them what? Did you notice? Goshen, the best land in Egypt. What he calls, you're going to eat the fat of the land. I mean, they're going from famine to fatness is the arc of this story. And it's all happened because they were provoked to stare death in the face that God would grant to them the life that he had always determined to give to them. It was the death scare physically that led them to the life that God would provide through the faithful mediator Joseph, that they escaped certain death in order to come into abundant life. That's point one. But you know, they weren't just merely moving from famine to fullness. We see that in the context of this whole passage and the content of this story as it unfolds. We see that they were moving from fault to forgiveness. But guess what this is? This is just another way to face death. Well, death of a different kind. If you'll recall, their going to Egypt caused them all kinds of problems, remember? Yes, they got grain and they were able to survive physically a little longer, but as they were tested by the Lord of the land, this I.E. Joseph, who they didn't recognize, what was exposed in their hearts and in their life was a much deeper deadness, a more profound deadness, a more significant deadness that had nothing to do with physical food but had everything to do with their spiritual condition. Joseph, who has power over them, who rules over them, who could snuff out their life in a second, is the one who puts them to the test. And he puts them to the test to draw out, we might say, the ruin of their soul, the thing that is actually dead within them. I mean, he knows personally, for instance, that they are deceivers, that they are known not to tell the truth. And so after receiving their grain from the very first trip, he put their money back in their sack and sent them on their way to see if when they returned, they would tell the truth about it. To see whether or not they have changed. Would they be truthful that they received their money back for the grain that they received in Egypt? He knew personally that they were self-centered. Joseph then tested their willingness to care for their brother Simeon as he held Simeon in custody until they would return to Benjamin to see if they would return or they would just cut their losses and run. Would they remember Simeon or would they care for him or would they leave, well, Simeon like they left him, Joseph, and send him off with Ishmaelite traitors? Knowing personally that they were, there was a tendency towards violence, Joseph tested their willingness to sacrifice for their brother Benjamin. When, they, when he was falsely accused of taking the silver cup of Joseph's in just the last story, 
and he was going to be held as a lifelong slave in Egypt, he was testing whether one of them would step up and stand in the gap for their brothers or they would simply leave him and wouldn't sacrifice for the goodness and on his behalf. These tests, what were they intended to do? To reveal the deadness, the sin, the guilt that was inside of these brothers over the 20 years separation between the moment of Joseph's selling into slavery and this moment, them coming clean in Egypt. And ultimately what happened? Well, we read about it in the last passage, didn't we? Judah said, the Lord has found out the guilt of his servants. Now, what does that actually have to do with today? Well, if you'll look at the text before us, notice what happens. Joseph, in his forgiveness, having revealed himself to them, having had an emotionally um, rich moment of tears and falling upon each other's neck and hugging and kissing and caring for one another, doesn't simply stop there. Notice what he does. He doesn't just simply say forgiveness. He shows forgiveness. Look at it. He gives his brothers wagons and donkeys. Ten donkeys of the male kind, ten more donkeys of the female kind, 20 donkeys in all. And of course, it would have been Joseph who was led away on donkeys years ago in wagons from the Ishmaelites on his way to slavery to Egypt. But he's forgiven them. And he's now covering their guilt with the gifts of his kindness. His brothers are those who sold him into slavery with 20 shekels of silver 20 years ago. But what does he do here with Benjamin? He gives him 300 shekels of silver as a gift. It was them who had taken his coat of many colors and ripped it into shreds and dipped it into goat's blood in order to fake his death with the father. But notice what he does here as they come back to Egypt and as he reveals himself, he gives every one of them a new suit of clothes. It's an amazing picture. It's as if he's saying to you, I forgive you, let me show you. All the things that you use to try to destroy me are the things I'm going to give to you, to restore unto you the life that is now yours in Egypt. I will stand in the gap for you. All the things you use to try to kill me, I will use for your abundant life. It's a tremendous picture, isn't it? It's a tremendous picture of what forgiveness is all about, that they had had to come to terms with the death inside of them, with the guilt and the sinfulness of their fallen condition, in order to walk into the forgiveness of the abundant life. How, how beautiful is this picture of what Christ has done for us? As he is one who has not just simply said, yes, I forgive you, but he has given to us, we're told, the whole of the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought us into the best of the land. He has given to us the fatness of the gospel. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And that when we get there, it'll be more beautiful than any land that we've ever laid our eyes on. Joseph wants them to know it's all over. The forgiveness is complete. The spiritual deadness is over. The life that is now of the grace of the promises of God's covenant are yours. Through me, the, the, in many ways, the mediator, Joseph, the one who stands on the behalf of his brothers and his father. 
I love that point. You don't expect it. Genesis 45, 24, as he speaks to his brothers, he's just giving them all these good things and he's sending them back to get their father and he says, now listen, don't quarrel on the way. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting note. His final words, just don't fight, all right? Just don't fight on your way home. And it makes all the sense in the world when you think about it, doesn't it? Because you can see them pulling out with the wagons and the donkeys and all the stuff. And if they're not fighting over the stuff on their way to get there, they're at least fighting over, well, let's, now let's go back over the details of how this really went down. Um, I, I think more guilt should be laid at Judah's feet than Reuben. Now, do you remember Reuben? I mean, he actually tried to advocate for Joseph a long time ago. And guys, I told you this was going to happen to us. All of this mess could have never happened if you guys had just done the right thing. All of, you expect all of that. And Joseph is saying, it's over, guys. There's no need to talk about it. It's done. I've forgiven you. I am not just saying that. I am showing it with the whole of the life, the abundant life that I'm giving to you. Isn't it amazing omission in this text? Because don't you expect this? When the brothers go back to tell Jacob, <laughs> oh, guess what? Uh, Joseph is alive. Now, you probably have some questions, and uh, we'll explain all that in time. You're right, you expect that, right? You expect Joseph to go, what? <laughs> like the last 20 plus years I've lived as if my son is dead, and you faked it all? Like you expect that dialogue. Do we get that at all? Not at all. And you're not going to get it in the future either. It's not necessarily that it didn't happen. But part of what the text is trying to communicate to us is that because it's forgiven, it's forgotten. It's no longer at your feet. It's no longer your guilt to hold. There's no more need to rehash it. There's no, nor, no more need to say, I told you so. There's no more punishment to levy. They have moved in the fullness of the spiritual death into what is genuinely the spiritual life. They have become, in the language of the New Testament, new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But not only do we see this movement from, from death unto life physically, this movement from death unto life spiritually in the midst of this text, we, we see a movement from grief unto greatness in this text. And it's, it's one of the grandest reversals we see anywhere in the Old Testament. Over two decades now, Jacob has lived under the suspicion, under the belief that his son, Joseph, his favored one, is dead. He was so petrified to send Benjamin on with the brothers all the way to Egypt because he was the only other son of Rachel, his beloved. He has been so concerned about protecting the lineage of of these favored sons. And now as he looks in the distance, an entourage is approaching. Fancy wagons, you know, these are, these are SUV Tahoe types that are tinted windows. This is like, you know, presidential looking, you know, flags in the windows. This is that kind of moment. Lots of provisions. And behold, it's his sons. And as they return and tell him that Joseph is alive, isn't it fascinating? It's such a real moment. What does it say about his heart? What happens? It's numb. 
It's almost as if he's saying, are you adding insult to injury here? Are you now going to, are you now going to, can actually come in after all of this and you're going to tell me that I, I don't believe you. I, I don't believe you. And in fact, it, it, well, it's a lot like the way the disciples received the story of Jesus post his resurrection, wasn't it? When the, when the women had come from the tomb and they share with the disciples, he, he, he's alive. I've seen him with my own eyes. And the disciples were told, what are you talking about? And they disbelieve. Very similar in this text. And then we're told Jacob, or excuse me, yes, we're told Jacob, that he listens to their words, and he sees the wagons, and he begins to believe. And it says in that moment, in a beautiful turn of phrase in Genesis 46.4, his soul revived. Now, I know that Joseph was never dead. But if you're Jacob, he was as good as dead. He, he was as gone as gone could be. And now, in the midst of what has been a physical movement from death into life, from a spiritual movement from death into life, he's actually witnessing a from death into life with his own son. There's a resurrection in this text. The one whom he had given up on and thought in whose mission his life was utterly gone. He is now alive. It is well. And notice it's enough for, for Jacob to just go to Egypt, what? And see his son once before he dies. It's almost the language of, well, Simeon in the New Testament, right? As he holds the Lord Jesus Christ in his hands and he lays his eyes upon the Messiah and he is one that he had looked for throughout the years because it had been revealed to him to God that he would lay his eyes upon the Messiah and as soon as he did, it was enough for him. He could then die. That's the spirit of Jacob in the midst of this passage. He's gonna lay his eyes on on Joseph, the one who he thought was dead, who's alive. And notice what the text tells us with this beautiful, ironic reversal. In fact, he's going to stay alive so long that he's going to very gently close your eyes, Jacob. The one that you thought was dead and whose eyes you'd never see again is the one in whom is alive who will close your eyes and the day of your death comes. It's an incredible picture. It's an incredible picture of from death into life, from, from lost hope and dashed hope to fulfillment. It's a picture of promise unto, unto fruition. It's a, it's a glorious testimony that God is beginning in real and genuine and true form to answer and fulfill his promises. You see, that's why this whole thing, well, ended with a genealogy. You know, we've seen this, right? In the book of Genesis, as we've made our way through these genealogies. Well, we see one here, right? All those hard to pronounce names at the end. But all of what Genesis does with these genealogies is telling us we've come to a stop here. We're at a hinge point in the story. We've come to a place now where they're leaving the land of Canaan and they thought they would always be there. But what was the land of Canaan? Well, it was to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But what does it become? A howling wasteland. 
The place of God's people has become a famined land. And where are they, where's he taking them? To the place that's supposed to be the wasteland, Egypt. <laughs> this pagan, idolatrous place. He's going to take them to Egypt. And what's it look like, according to the text? The land of Canaan. It's Goshen. It's the best of the best. It's the fat of the land. And God is going to take them there through his servant Joseph. God is going to take them from a place that was not abundant to a place that's abundant, not because it's so important about the land. The people of Israel are going to mess this up all the way through. They've always been thinking, even today in some regards, that there's, these promises are bound up entirely in this little sliver of land known as the land of Canaan. But the Old Testament picture of the land of Canaan was only a picture and foreshadowing of a better land that the Lord was always going to take them to. It was never about the land. It's always been about the Lord of the land. Do you see what God says to Jacob, in the midst of his vision in Genesis 46, Jacob, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Get up and go to Egypt. For I will make of you a great nation. And I myself will go with you there. You see, my friends, it is not about the land. It's not, it's not about the place or the location, ultimately. It's about the Lord of the land and where he's at. And being under the banner of his love and provision. Being under his caretaking. Because on that day, when the heavens open up and the Lord Jesus Christ descends in the way that he ascended so many years ago. It won't simply be about the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be about the Lord of the land. And in fact, it's your relationship to the Lord of the land that matters so much more than the benefits of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, there's a real change in Jacob in this passage. What has Jacob been after his whole life? <laughs> Sneaking a blessing. He, whose name means deceiver, has from his whole life been trying to sneak a blessing. And notice all the blessings that are given to him in this passage, but notice what happens. He's not even concerned about the blessings anymore. He's concerned about seeing his resurrected son. His resurrected son. See, friends, it might be that you have thought <laughs> and maybe were even converted in some ways under the drive of choosing heaven over the alternative. Because the alternative sounded bad. And you thought to yourself, I'd rather be in a place that, you know, with gates of pearls and and streets of gold. I mean, that sounds a lot better than, than the alternative. But what the text is actually teaching us and what ultimately the story of the Bible teaches us is that if we are actually seeking the new heavens and the new earth and our relationship with the Lord based upon the benefits and not based upon the Lord, then we've missed all of what he has to offer. Ask yourself this question. Would heaven still be heaven for you if Jesus weren't there? Would heaven still be heaven for you if the Lord of the land wasn't there? Jacob's heart has so changed and so turned 
They don't, no matter about the wagons and the grain and the 300 shekels of silver and all the fancy new clothes. It's enough to see my resurrected son. Can you say with Jacob, it would be enough for me to see the resurrected Savior? And no matter what's going on around me, to follow the bidding of the Lord of the land. As we keep pace with this story, (laughs) we see the beginnings of, well, the great work of redemption. For just in a few pages from now, you know what's going to happen. They're going to end up there in Egypt. They're going to grow to an incredible number, and they're going to go through all kinds of death there called slavery. When a Pharaoh, at the opening of the book of Exodus, we're told, a Pharaoh is in power who doesn't remember and doesn't know Joseph. The mediator's memory is gone. But it will be through that suffering and through those deaths that God will bring them into the next stage of their life. Believer in Christ, number your days. Take in the wisdom of your suffering. Take in all of the challenges of your struggles. They're meaningful. For in all of the experiences of your suffering and death, He is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Though the body be wasting away, the soul is renewed day by day. Father in heaven, we would ask that that would be true of us. A people who are not afraid to think about death because we know who has conquered it. And that resurrected Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one in whom our life is hidden. And if the grave could not hold Him, it will not hold us. With hope, let us remember our death. For in remembering our death, we actually remember our life. We remember the one who has conquered death. Even Jesus, the greater Joseph, the true Lord of the land. It's in his name we pray. Amen.